Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. I'm here today with Jerry Craig, the Executive Director from the Summit County Alcohol, Drug, Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board. Jerry, welcome. Yes, thank you. Okay. So since 2013, you and your staff, actually probably well before that, you and your staff have been working to respond to the opioid epidemic in Summit County. What programs have been put in place to address this crisis? You're right, Greg. We have worked very hard uh, to address the opiate epidemic, and our work has been over a long period of time. I would say that in 2013 is when we really stepped up our game. Um, one of the things that we tried to look at was a, an overall uh, strategy to address this. So we are looking at prevention services and how can we make an investment in, in increased prevention. We looked at promoting the use of Suboxone and Vivitrol within our programs and, and services and doing that in a way that we felt might give us the most effectiveness. Um, and that was in partnership with the Great Lakes Addiction Recovery Center. Um, so they allowed us to uh, they allowed us to use their technical expertise to help our providers along. We also promoted the use of ambulatory or outpatient detoxification and built capacity within our agency systems. Um, we've always been, we've been one of the leaders in the state in development of recovery housing. And that was because we received a grant from the uh, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, and we were able to develop those resources locally pretty quickly. We've also been leaders in the promotion and support of the use of recovery coaches. And we, again, were one of the first communities in Ohio that went to Connecticut to get training for uh, trainers to bring recovery coaching to Ohio. Um, we also uh, formed the Opiate Task Force in 2014. And as a result of the Opiate Task Force, we've been able to accomplish a couple of key things. One is we funded Dawn Clinics. The Dawn Clinics are deaths avoided. Dawn stands for deaths avoided with naloxone. But the Dawn Clinics are essentially the provision of Narcan with instructions on how to administer it, the signs and symptoms of an overdose, and also the importance of calling 911. And we've been able to establish two Dawn Clinics, one at Summit County Public Health and the other one at Edwin Shaw Hospital. Not only are they clinics that are held within those settings, but we also are, have the capacity then to do um, 
dawn clinics out in the community. That's a great program. I've participated in it. It doesn't take long and you end up with your kit. You walk away with your kit and you're able to save a life. That's right. And it's some measure of comfort for family members to know that they at least have some ability to mitigate the, the impact of the potential overdose. So just one point of, you know, one of the things that we like to do with our podcast series is investigate what some other communities are doing with that. And in Baltimore, they've got an objective to put Narcan in every household. So um, that's kind of an aggressive program, but a statement in terms of the value of that in in their community in terms of saving lives. And um, certainly at at some point, uh, I'd like to see this, you know, grow and grow in, in, uh, in our community here in Summit County. Well, there's a couple of things that we've done as a part of our opiate task force to help promote that. Right now, we have 55 pharmacies who who um, are able to distribute naloxone without a prescription. Um, if you have insurance, the insurance will cover it. Otherwise, it's cash. But we can get through. You can get your Narcan through the Dawn clinics as well. We've also pushed for each of the law enforcement agencies in our community to have to carry Narcan, and now we've been able to establish, I think, about 90% of our law enforcement agencies currently carrying Narcan. It's great. I, probably the last thing, and, and maybe one of the most important things, is that we've really pushed through our Opiate Task Force an educational initiative, um, and that starts with our Opiate Task Force website, which is summitcountyopiatetaskforce.org, but it provides resources for families, for healthcare providers, for um, for a, a myriad of different types of populations. And it gives basic information, also allows you to be added to the opiate task force, and um, also creates a mechanism for people to request somebody to speak on the opiate uh, task force and the work that's being done. One of the, uh, one of the largest achievements uh, from the opiate task force has been the creation of a speakers bureau. And our speakers bureau has uh, trainings uh, every every few months. So if you're interested in, in talking to your civic group or something like that, we actually provide the educational materials about how did this issue start, what are some of the things that can be done, and uh, provide some basic education about this whole opiate epidemic. Hmm. So you, basically it's train the trainer. Exactly. And then the trainer goes out into the community yes. at these various events. And so they contact you to schedule somebody. Is that how that works? That's then? correct. You can you can request that through mm-hmm. the Opiate Task Force website. There is a there is a, sec, a section of the website where you can request more information and we'll connect with you and, and try to make sure that you your needs are met. Okay. So in uh, you put out a regular newsletter to your staff and in your mid August newsletter you talked about identifying ways to address service gaps, outreach, education, access, and treatment effectiveness in the community. So can you share with our listeners what you've uh, learned from your studies there? Well, the ADM board is responsible for making sure that the system is functioning to its fullest capacity. So, you know, we are responsible for funding services to meet people's mental health and addiction needs. But we also want to make sure that the services that we currently fund are functioning at their most efficient uh, uh, processes. So one of the things that we've done is we've established some mechanisms, some regular meetings for cross-system collaboration and communication. And that means having not necessarily just the treatment agencies, but also our, our partners at the table. So our, we have a residential wait list group that meets every couple of weeks. And along with them come people with 
the court system, people with um, probation, people involved in the provision of the services, and ADM board staff kind of walk through um, placements and make sure that there are no barriers that are posed by those systems that might impede somebody's ability to get into treatment on a timely basis. And you identified some barriers that you're addressing now. And and one of those such kind of barriers was multiple assessments. So when somebody came into the system, they had central assessment, and then they'd be passed along to a service provider. They had to be assessed again. So what's being done about that? Well, I think all of us can share the frustration when we go to a medical provider and we have to tell our story over and over and over again. Absolutely. And and think about that in the context of somebody who's revealing something that they're ashamed of, that's very personal, and having to relate that time and time again. um, It's just not a a good um, customer experience. So what we want to do is we want to eliminate the duplication when that exists. So one of the things that we are looking at doing is is um, eliminating our central assessment uh, program so that in the favor of a referral hub, so that essentially what happens is if somebody is looking for uh, treatment, they would contact a single number, they would talk to somebody at that number who would provide some preliminary screening to assess exactly what the issue is that they're seeking treatment for, and they would be able then to direct that person to a provider who has an available appointment and um, and has the necessary services available to be able to address that person's treatment needs. So that kind of leads us into my next question, which is timing is everything on treatment. When, you know, you just, um, you need to have the resources to treat when they're ready. And there's typically a gap in that right now. Right now, in fact, I think your wait time's um, it's over 10 days. What is it now typically for beds? Well, it depends on what service. For detox, sure. we're looking at probably five to seven days, sometimes as high as 10 days for males. Um, and again, the, the weight is trip, trip typically different for males and females. Males are, we, we get a lot more referrals for males. Um, residential treatment, we're looking at probably um, 35 to 40 days, um, and that varies as well. Um, and so, you know, depending on what that level of care is that that person requires, um, there could be a wait for services. And it's important for us to make sure that we provide some sort of interim programming to allow that person to have some hope that they're eventually going to get into treatment, mm-hmm. but also to, to begin the process of engaging them into treatment. So it may not be the optimal level of service, but it might be a discussion about the problem and, and some education about it and um, and some support to make sure that people understand that um, there's a there's a road to recovery, that there is hope. Um, oftentimes, people who are mired in addiction have lost all their hope. And, and so we want to make sure that um, that our system is accepting of them and provides that that help that they're that hope that they desperately need. So your referral hub is going to go a ways to address some of those wait time issues. Can you describe how that would work? Right. What what we're what we're um, going to be looking at is trying to have agencies um, increase their assessment capacity, and what they'll do is they'll report on a daily basis what their next available appointments are, so that we can log those with through the referral hub. And so when somebody calls in and looks for treatment, we can say we know that agency A has an appointment next week, or somebody has an somebody else over here has an appointment 
tomorrow. So it could be that you have a, a range of options available to you with different levels of access, and you can make a decision based on the geographic location, your preference for which agency it might be, and the availability of the appointments to make an appointment at that agency. Okay. Do you have any help with guiding you through this? Yes, and, and at the hub? A, a central part of that is to have a system navigator who's attached to that person. So once we make that appointment for that person and then that referral, what we'll do is we'll have that system navigator follow up with that person and hopefully make a warm handoff to treatment. Um, again, trying to contact that person in between to make sure that we don't lose that referral. And part of what we'd like to accomplish through this referral hub is to get feedback from agencies about the completion of that referral. Was it successful or did that person not show up? And if that happens, then we can start to explore the reasons for that not to have happened. So a system navigator, is that a coach? What is that? That's a, that's a real person though, right? It's, it's a real person. Um, Trained know, professional? Is that what we're talking about? We're talking about somebody who, who might be trained as a recovery coach, somebody with some experience with our system who understands our system and how it works so that they can, and, and has established relationships with each of those treatment agencies in order to facilitate that referral. Okay. Kind of a treatment specialist that understands the whole system. and Right. Yeah. That acts as a liaison there. Okay. So, and how soon is the hub going to be in place, did you say? We're hoping to have the hub in place by the end of this year, although we may be starting to implement some elements of that over the final quarter. So maybe November, December, we'll start to implement um, some components of that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about the bridge program where Suboxone is used to bridge the gap between detox and entry into treatment. So how's that program working? Well, the program was, was initially started about a year and a half ago, and we had a relationship between Oriana House and their central assessment and their detox program and Community Health Center, where we actually had a relationship where if an individual showed up in detox, they could be started on Suboxone, which starts to ease the symptoms of that of that detoxification or withdrawal almost immediately where that person can benefit from treatment. Our thinking was that we could refer somebody directly into treatment very quickly, maybe within two or three days, and reduce the length of time that that person's in detox, and we could free that bed up for somebody else. At the same time, then, that person would be able to be engaged in whatever level of services that they would, be, um, what they, that they would require. Part of the problem with that was that when the DEA um, came and, and did an inspection at Oriana House, they decided that use of Suboxone in that particular setting was not appropriate. And so the program was interrupted while we tried to have that decision reversed. Um, we, we think it was an interpretation of the law that was um, maybe a little bit of an overreach. And so um, in our, in our um, efforts to have that overturned, we were successful. And we're just now beginning to ramp that program back up again. Okay. So it's just coming online now. It's just coming back online. All right. Now let's jump to a different topic uh, entirely. The uh, and, and you and I spoke of this a couple of weeks ago. Coleraine Township implemented a quick response team that's basically a cross-functional team consisting of policemen, EMS, and social worker that go out in the community and they knock on doors three to five days after someone overdoses. And just last week, the city of Cincinnati 
uh, passed a motion to adopt a very similar program for them. What do you think the prospects are for doing that here in Akron? Well, after learning a little bit about this program, we're, we're very excited about it. And we've had some discussions with the county, and we've also had some discussions with some police chiefs in some of those municipalities that are most impacted by our overdoses. So what we would like to do is we'd like to include some parts of Akron, um, also Cuyahoga Falls, Springfield, Lakemore, Norton, and Barberton, which are probably the most heavily impacted by overdoses. Um, we see that this is really a nominal cost and, and well worth the investment when you consider the the um, savings in you know the the savings in the use of resources both EMS fire police and the emergency departments but also when you look at the impact of the program itself you know with a 30% reduction in overdoses and an 80% success in getting people into treatment i think that um, those numbers speak speak volumes about the value of a program like this. Okay. Um, let's talk now about the handoff between agencies. Gosh, that's kind of an a area that historically, as I understand it, has been problematic where, you know, someone in treatment establishes a relationship and then they get passed off to another provider. But the continuity there, for whatever reason, you end up with 35, 40% dropout, I guess, through that, through that process. You're doing something to address that. What is that? Sure. That, and that's not just a problem in addiction and, and mental health treatment. That's, a, that's an issue in healthcare. And if you look at some of the managed care companies and some of the indicators that they're using, they're actually providing incentives for agencies to make sure that there's follow-up care after somebody's released from the hospital. So it's no different for us in in uh, the behavioral health field that we want to make sure that people have um, a, a good handoff from one level of treatment to another. Part of what we're doing to facilitate that is using, like I said before, recovery coaches, system navigators to help transition somebody from one level of service to another to close the loop, if you will, to make sure that that person makes appropriate uh, connection. Outstanding. Um, so I understand that your efforts to expand residential, uh, the number of beds available through the IBH Recovery Center are beginning to pay off. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Last week, we were able to announce that we've expanded the capacity of Interval Brotherhood Home uh, by 20 beds. Um, this is our second um, This is our second. Uh, investment in services in IBH over the past three years. Um, in 2015, we actually increased beds by 10. So our total investment in additional beds in this community over the past three years has been about uh, 30 beds. What we're anticipating is that initially, um, again, this program starts, the, this expansion starts in October, and they're going to be expanding into an additional building. So there's some, some a capacity that remains right now in the buildings that they're in. So they could essentially start accepting people almost immediately um, at, at the beginning of October, but it'll take them some time to ramp up to the full capacity of 20 So they, as they add staff in order to uh, provide the treatment and the supports that are necessary to make that uh, occur. Outstanding. So one thing that you may not be able to answer, but I have to ask it, is historically they've been abstinence-based. Medication-assisted uh, treatment has really, uh, by, on, by all accounts, been very, very successful. I understand they're looking at that now. Yes, and 
you know, Summit County is the birth, Akron, Ohio is the birthplace of AA, and AA really um, spoke about the 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 tradition of of abstinence based uh, treatment, and so IBH has has been in our community since the seventies, and so they're making a transition from an abstinence based treatment setting to um, introduce medication assisted treatment immediately, most immediately, they're going to start accepting people on Vivitrol. Um, and once once they've had some success with that, they'll also be introducing Suboxone. And that's a process that will take some time. And uh, certainly we want to make sure that their staff are both trained in the use of uh, medication-assisted treatments and also treatment that accompanies that, um, that, 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 there, that there, there's an acceptance to that level of treatment. It's a culture change, isn't it? It's, it certainly is a culture change, and, and we want to be respectful of um, IBH, but at the same time, the science is moving forward, and we want to be, just like we were on the front end of AA, we want to be on the front end of cutting-edge, evidence-based treatment programs. Right now, IBH does accept women, pregnant women, who are on uh, medications, buprenorphine, and they will um, they will expand that again to include Vivitrol, and then uh, soon we'll we hope to see Suboxone as well. Okay, can you share with our listeners that may not be uh, fully aware of it, Vivitrol? Vivitrol is a um, it's a long acting um, version of of naltrexone. Naltrexone blocks the opiate receptors so that even if somebody takes an opiate, it will not bond to the receptor. Therefore, that person cannot get high and they cannot experience an overdose. So they go out, they use, nothing happens. Correct. Correct. And, and while that's a, you know, that's a, a medication that's, that, that's helpful to, um, to, uh, you know, reduce the impact of the opiate. Um, one of the other one of the other benefits that we're learning about is that it really reduces the craving as well. And that's that's something that I don't know that research necessarily supports, but it's something that we're hearing anecdotally from people who have received Vivitrol. Hmm. Great. Um, what else would you like our listeners to know about the ADM's uh, board's plans to address the epidemic in our community? Um, and the leadership position that you've taken on this. Sure. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit further about the ability to get people into treatment when they're ready, because there's some things that we're doing as our system in our system as a result of our $3.2 million expansion of treatment. Um, one of the things that we're doing is we're looking at expanding our detoxification program. So right now we have a capacity of 18, um, and that was a, an addition of, of uh, two beds, two or three beds from what our traditional capacity has been over the past year, year and a half. We are now looking at... Let me just back up. Okay. So the last year, year and a half, you had how many beds? 16. And now you're up to, you've expanded it by 18, did you say? We, we have 18 yeah, now. Yeah, 18. Okay. okay. So we've gone from, so under the, under the um, what we used to have was about, it was 16 beds in our detox program. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to increase the capacity without additional cost to 18 okay. in this interim period of time while we sort of assessed our system's needs. Now we've now we've looked at expanding detox by at least six beds, possibly more, depending on what we can what we can work out with existing capacity. And and what will that will do is that will increase our ability to serve probably about 500 more people per year based on uh, the regular um, 
you know, the length of stay that we traditionally have um, in our system. Two questions, two follow-up questions on that. Number one, how many do you serve per year right now, Jerry? I couldn't tell you that. Okay. The other thing that we're looking at doing to help expand our uh, capacity to um, keep people engaged in treatment while they're waiting for the appropriate level of care Mm -hmm. is expand um, interim housing. So what our interim housing would be, it would be um, uh, beds that would be available for people who are coming directly out of detox so that we don't waste that detox. Um, you know, if we send somebody through detox and then back out into the streets, essentially we've wasted that investment, not only financially, but in that person's recovery. So what we want to do is protect that investment, protect that person's recovery by giving them a safe place to live with some programming and some ability to start to engage them into services while they wait for the appropriate level of service, whether that's a slot in an IOP program, intensive outpatient program, or whether that's residential treatment. So that's another piece that will augment our system. And and that's really the result of the conversations that I've had throughout the community when I go out and talk with people about what what is it that that um, that bothers you most about touching our system. It's this notion that when people go into to detox, they come back out into that same use environment, and it really uh, results in a, a almost immediate relapse. Yeah. Okay. So what's the difference between interim housing and community housing? I think probably that it's, it's, that it's specialized. It's specialized for a specific purpose. It's, it's transitional. So it's not meant to be long-term housing like some of our recovery housing is. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our housing is, is considered to be um, housing that's available for people that are coming out of some level of care into additional to, to make that help them make that transition to a different level of care. Okay. So the people in interim housing, are they um, is that dedicated housing for just interim? or are they also mixed in with you know recovery housing, say? We're anticip- Does that make sense? Yeah. We're anticipating using this housing as simply bridge housing. Mm-hmm. So um, while it might be it might be possible to use this housing to allow somebody to stay while they go through treatment, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe um, maybe avoiding the need for residential treatment because they live in a stable environment. But what we're really seeing is as using this housing as a way to protect that person's recovery coming out of detox while they wait for an alter- alternative level of care. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I guess where I was going with the question was more the, the type of people that they would be in with and around. You know, if they would be exposed to people that are down that road a little ways, you know, in their recovery, which would seem to be a very positive thing because their sphere of influence and people that have already, you know, walked that path that they're working on walking might be positive versus just being set aside with everybody that are in the same boat. But it's possible. There's there's always two sides to that equation though. You know, if you've got if you're early in recovery or if you have a sustained recovery and you're in with people who are very early in their recovery, sure. there could be some triggers that exist mm-hmm. there. There could be some influences that we don't want to necessarily introduce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to be really careful about that. So you know, we've explored that with some of our recovery providers, our recovery housing providers, mm-hmm. and um, we haven't had any that have been willing to step forward and introduce this into their programs. And so that's why we're developing some additional capacity. Okay, got it. 
That's clear then. So, Jerry, what else would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic? Well, I think that, you know, the first thing that we'd want people to understand is that we do have a role. We certainly have a role in prevention. We have a, a role in uh, education of the community. And certainly we have a role in treatment and making sure that we have maximized the resources that we have our, ourselves, whether that be financial or the resources that we've already invested in to make sure that those work as efficiently as possible. Um, and the system performance to maximize that is critical. And, and so the ADM board is doing everything it can uh, with, through our staff to make sure that we coordinate those services, identify any barriers, and work to resolve those barriers with those agencies and with our other stakeholders in the community. So for family families that have a loved one who is struggling, struggling with opioid addiction, how can they... How it's, uh, what is the best way for them to engage you and what can you provide to them? We provide, um, we, we walk through the system with family members. We get a lot of calls from family members who are requesting services for their loved ones. And certainly the first question that we have to ask is, what does that person want? Um, oftentimes family members want treatment for their individuals and those individuals aren't necessarily on the same page. And so it's very important for us to gauge that person's readiness to enter treatment. Um, and we and we walk through that and we try to negotiate that with the family member. And sometimes when the family member wants that person to treatment, but that person's not ready for treatment, we need to offer some supports to the family members. And so we usually will direct them to resources such as Naranon so that when they're trying to be helpful to their family members. Their helpfulness is actually helpful. So um, those are some things that, that we can do to support families. But mostly what we try to do is we try to help them to understand how our system works, how to navigate the system, and also what to expect from treatment when somebody enters treatment. Okay. Um, Jerry, I want to thank you for your time today. really appreciate it. Sure. We appreciate being asked. Yeah. Any final Thoughts for our listeners? Well, I think that it's important for us to understand that while the ADM board certainly has a critical role in recovery, everybody has a role in recovery. Um, you know, everybody listening can play a role in this crisis. Um, things that, that are very simple, and, and certainly there's no magic bullet to address this issue um, on a comprehensive basis, but you can dispose of your unused prescription medications, and there's certainly opportunities to do that. Most police stations have a, a drop box where you can use, take your unused medications. Um, talk to your children about the dangers of a prescription drug abuse. Um, it's shown by research that when children, um, when, when families talk to their young people about the, the dangers of prescription drug use or any drug use, that that use goes down. When perception of of harm goes down, use goes up. And so parents can play a central role in educating their their children. It's also important for you to ask your doctor about alternatives to opiate-based treatments. There's, you know, oftentimes treatment is a negotiation and, and the doctor's not always right. It's what's right for you is what you need to be able to talk with your doctor about. That's really a great concept. Treatment is a negotiation. I've never heard it put quite that way. That's pretty strong. Well, sure, because if if 
in order for somebody to benefit from treatment, they have to be on the same page with the, with the treatment plan. And sometimes it's better for us to accomplish something partially with the cooperation of that person than to try to impose your will on that person, what you think they should do, and have it fail miserably because that person is not necessarily on the same page. Sure. Yeah. So um, the Opiate Task Force webpage has a lot of information on this issue. Um, our Speakers Bureau would be glad to address the group. A church or, or any place of business. The webpage again is opiate summit county opiate task force.org. So we try to keep it as simple as possible. Real simple. Yep. Now, now there are a lot of people who are affected by this opiate epidemic from families and first responders to healthcare workers and also child protective service workers. You know, you see when children are affected by the use uh, patterns of their, of their, um, Parents. That's been in the news quite a bit the last few days, in fact. Some studies on that. How many children have been taken away from their parents here in the last year? It's been startling. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a financial cost, certainly. And it's, but it's also um, a cost to the public. It's a cost to the public in, in the quality of life and, Mm -hmm. and in making sure that those young people are prepared to learn and and prepare to be successful in life. So uh, we just want to acknowledge that there is an impact on on so many parts of our society and and really thank them for their role in in helping to address it. Um, There are a lot of champions in our community from all these different sectors of society, and each of them has made an impact. And and I know that there's a lot of frustration in our community. but we all need to re- recognize that there's no single intervention that will have a significant impact. But what I can tell you from the ADM board's perspective is that treatment is available. People are benefiting from treatment. Treatment does work and people do recover. So l- let me just have uh, one follow-up question about the little bit of frustration at time, your comment on that in the community. And at a couple of the events that I've gone to, one in particular, I sense that from the recovery community, you know, you've got a strong recovery community here. I mean, this is where it all started, recovery. And so you've got a strong culture for that. And there is just a little bit of um, friction. So what are, what are you doing as a board to engage the recovery community and so that we uh, collectively work at this problem? Well, part of what we're doing is education to reduce stigma because stigma continues to be one of the biggest barriers to people getting into treatment. There's such a shame associated with it because people who are in an active addiction are engaging in behaviors that if they weren't under the under addiction, they would be ashamed of. And so, you know, when people are early in their recovery, oftentimes they're faced with the with the outcome of all the different things that have happened as a result of their addiction, and they have to repair those things in their lives as part of their recovery process. And it's really important for us to support them through that. But when when we provide education to the community, we need to provide education not only about the cause of the problem, the treatments that are available, but also about the people who have been successful and have have learned from their experiences and been able to reach out and help others. And so part of what we'd like to do in, in order to help with reducing stigma is, is to really introduce people who have been in addiction and have turned their lives around as stories of success and hope for those who are still in the throes of addiction. 
Okay. So you reach out to those that are in recovery and you engage them to be involved in the educational process. Right. Is there any other areas where you've involved the recovery community in developing or part of the solution? Sure. You know, every day I talk to people who are impacted by addiction. Um, you know, if, if I just stayed in my office and talked to my staff and we talked to our social service agencies, that would be valuable. But it's also valuable for us to have conversations with people with addictions and what their experience has been in our system. Because when I, when I listen in a meaningful way to those people and their experiences, I can make adjustments in our system. We can make adjustments in this system in a way that will hopefully um, eliminate those barriers. Okay. So open door. If someone from the recovery community has an idea, open door policy. Sure, we try to contact you. We try to accommodate as many people as we can, um, and and certainly as this epidemic has blossomed, particularly over this summer, um, I've met meeting with a lot of different people to understand uh, what they would like to see happen in our community uh, to address it but also to facilitate a process by which we can bring those people together and, and do something collaboratively. Outstanding. Well, again, I want to thank you, Jerry, for your time today. really appreciate it. And also congratulate you on the work that you do. Well, thank you. And we appreciate the efforts that you're making to educate the community. Thank you. So we've been visiting today with Jerry Craig, the executive director of the Summit County Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover Two Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.